emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution. An economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, Business in the Knowledge Economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. I'm Ron Baker, along with my good friend and Barris SAGE Institute colleague, Ed Kless. On today's show, folks, we're honored to have back for the second time, Dr. Jules Goddard. Hey, Ed, how's it going? Great week, Ron. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a couple of weeks now, ever since we really booked uh, Dr. Goddard again and, and and got through Gary Hamill, his friend, which was exhausting. So now, <laughs> yeah, that's right, that's right. That was that was a great show, though. We got, I think we got in two or three questions, but that was about it. But no, he was good. Um, well, let me let me read Dr. Goddard in here. Dr. Jules Goddard earned his MA at Oxford, an MBA from Wharton, and his PhD from London Business School. He's currently research associate of the management lab at London Business School. He's a teacher, writer, and consultant in the areas of business creativity, strategic thinking, leadership, and corporate transformation. Dr. Goddard, welcome back to the Soul of Enterprise. Thank you, Ron. Absolutely delighted to be with you all. Uh, we're thrilled to have you. You were back. You were on back in January of 2015, episode number 27. Seems like eons ago. How have you and yours been holding up under COVID this year? It's a very good question, uh, Ron. I, of course, I'm an, of, an, of an age where I think it's easier. You know, I'm in my mid-70s. I'm sort of retired, although no one retires nowadays, of course. I'm still writing. I'm still teaching. I'm still working with the boards of firms. But what I've learned, I think, over the last six or nine months since the pandemic arrived in Europe is a bit more about self-discipline, prioritizing my time more skillfully, uh, doing less but better, uh, simplifying my life, appreciating nature, having, I think, better and deeper conversations with members of my family. And this has been very refreshing and very good. That's excellent. That's excellent. How about teaching? Uh, you said you were still teaching. Um, is that Would that be remote or... This is almost entirely remote. Um, it's interesting what we're learning about remote teaching. It's not such a bad thing. I remember Ma Marshall McLuhan, the great uh, Canadian uh, media theorist, believed that if the medium was slightly fuzzy, or if there isn't the same clarity of definition that there is in face-to-face, our imagine makes up for what the picture lacks. So we're more attentive to each other. We listen better. And it's a more democratic space in which to work. The bully can't hog uh, the conversation. And therefore, to some extent, it has that rather nice egalitarian, fair quality where everyone's voice is heard. And if you're a teacher, that's important. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Um, you know, you wrote in Uncommon Sense, Common Nonsense, Why Some Organizations Consistently Outperform Others, and it's your book from 2013, which Ed and I just absolutely loved. 
You, you said in that book, we believe that most enterprises today are insufficiently entrepreneurial. Do you think COVID might be changing that? That's a very good question. Yes, I think so. I think one of the things we've discovered working from home is that people are far more trustworthy than, if you like, the managerial ethos had always assumed that we're more productive very often when we're in our own space. And I think certainly we're more creative when we plan our own day and we have lengths of time that belong to us and us alone. I think the office will always play a major part, but I think something like the four day work week is in the offing mm. and the rights to be on one's own for a large part of the week, particularly uh, in consultancies, professional service firms, uh, creative firms, uh, tech firms. We need that greater uh, creativity. And I think we've been reminded of the creativity by the pandemic. We've, we've had to respond to a crisis and humans are always more creative and more productive and indeed happier in a crisis solving problems than they are reaching goals through plans which are far more sterile, I think, by comparison. So many of us have had to up our game in the last six months. I don't know whether that's true of all of us, but certainly in a university setting, that is definitely true. I love that point, and it kind of anticipates my next question. Um, and I know this is incredibly subjective and very anecdotal, but have you seen innovations or new ventures or just new ways of, of doing things like maybe knocking out some of this bureaucracy or these old management ideas that have impressed you? I was impressed that so many companies um, sort of rechanneled their uh, business model around uh, ventilators and, and PPE gowns and other forms of equipment and came to the world's health help in terms of health. But that's not quite the... The question you asked, your question is more like a Gary Hamill question, I guess. Um, what ways of working uh, were discovered or what new business models came to the fore? I think there is certainly a return to uh, internal markets as a replacement for hierarchy. I think hierarchy has had to soften in the last six months. And there's been a much greater democratization of innovation where everyone is taking up the, the challenge of framing solutions. And that, I think, has been quite a, quite a big difference. I'm, I'm struggling to think of, of firms I'm working with that have, that have done that with a particular effect. I'll keep thinking about that. But I'm sure that's exactly what's happening at the moment. I think you and I are optimists, aren't we, Ron? You presumably also see something of good coming out of this. For all the pain and the suffering, there is something good that's going to come out of this. Well, we're Austrian economists, Joel. We have to be optimists by definition. But I, I think back to the Great Depression and just the, you know, the flowering of innovation that took place in that horrific de decade was kind of amazing when you go back and look at it some evidence that innovation is slowing down or was until the beginning of the pandemic. There's not much data, obviously, yet in, in terms of the pandemic itself, the last six months. 
But there is quite a bit of evidence that since 2000, with the great exception of software development, uh, the innovations of the world have not been at a pace that they were in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I also read the other day that the most productive single decade technologically in human history was the 1880s or the 1890s. This is interesting. We we need sometimes to be reminded that in the 19th century in Britain, it was the Victorians, were extraordinarily innovative and very global, by the way, exceptionally global. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you've read Matt Ridley's book, How Innovation Works. That, that was just a great tour of, of how innovation works and what a surprise it is always. And we can't plan it. It always, it's always an act of creativity. Have you had Matt on your show yet? No, I would love to get Matt on get the show. On. He's brilliant. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, get him on. And Tim Harford. Yes. Tim Another. Harford. A uh, modern economist, rather like, uh, rather like Matt Ridley, um, all about innovation and new models of innovation, and rather like Gary's humanocracy, breaking through the old managerial structures and bureaucracies. Right. I, you know, we've had Dan Ariely on the show too, and I remember. I think Tim's got some debates with Dan on YouTube that he challenges him on certain things, and I just found that really refreshing as well. Yes. Brilliant guy. Um, you wrote something in the book too, that I I just think is profound. You said businesses decline as the production of new insights dries up a theory of business, therefore cannot be a substitute for insight. Oh God, did I say that? You said (laughs) that. Reminded of something I said 10 years ago. Um, (laughs) yes, you see, I think business ultimately is a learning race. I think that where markets reward firms for knowing something, it may be knowing something about consumer desires or wants, it may be something about the future that has been seen through foresight ahead of other competitors, it may be we've seen something in human nature that enables us to lead uh, and, uh, and work uh, collectively with others. But the winning firm knows something that other firms don't know. This is what I call uncommon sense. And of course, that aspect of knowledge arises through insight. It's, it's paying attention to surprise. I think it's Peter Drucker that said, almost all innovation starts with the unexpected. And therefore, the, the creative person is paying attention to whatever is unexpected. Because when the, when the world throws something that's unexpected at us, it's telling us in no uncertain terms that our expectations, our models of the world are somehow flawed. And therefore, it's reminding us that within us, there'll be something that that is mistaken that needs to be corrected. And I think that's where insight uh, plays such an important part in business and why the culture of the office, the culture of business needs to be one that that nourishes uh, the having of insights and the conversations that either uh, motivate those insights or share those insights. Yeah, you know, you, I think you quoted Russell Ackoff, who said the future is be- best dealt with using assumptions rather than forecasts. Yes, brilliant. I'd forgotten that uh, Russ Ackoff said that. That's absolutely right. I, by the way, linked to this is is this finding that um, 
smokers come up with more creative ideas than non-smokers in business. And this is a fairly uh, well-founded uh, idea. Uh, and it's an interesting one. Is it the nicotine? Almost certainly not. It's the fact that smokers stand outside right. in small gatherings having good conversations about topics that interest them. And that's the setting in which insights come about. Now, how do we bring those spontaneous conversations inside the building with the same mix of people who just cut across all the organizational boundaries, which, if you like, sparks the creativity that we all have and ignites precisely the insights that are at the beginning of the next breakthrough. That's a great point. I mean, could this be why, despite all this move to remote work, sort of because we have to, but if you listen to outfits like Apple and Google, they want people in the office to bang together and talk and meet, you know, in the hallway, because they think that's where innovation comes from. They, they're not big fans of remote work. Interesting. Flat structures, connecting people around the canteen, uh, the break, the walk outside, whatever it might be. But those crossways, those, that mixing, that uh, what's called uh, urban, urban friction, uh, Jane Jacobs, The Death mm -hmm. and Life of Great American Cities, I've been looking at this week. Why are cities so much more creative and insightful than non-cities? And why, with every doubling of city size, uh, she and others discovered that creativity, productivity, and wealth per capita increases by 15%. If you grow a town from a quarter of a million to half a million, everyone becomes 15% wealthier. There are 15% more patents delivered by that city. And in a sense, companies need to understand how cities work because as companies get bigger, they get less creative. Whereas when cities get bigger, they get more creative because cities do not have the hierarchical structures and the barriers that prevent, if you like, the mixing that makes them uh, so productive and creative. And that's why I think the Googles of this world are so clever. They organize as a city is organized, neighborhoods, walkways, pedestrians, conversations, cafes, bars, uh, low structures, not tall structures. Right, uh, you know, we've been saying since this COVID thing, people are predicting the decline of cities and we've been trying to make the point for the last few months on this show that sit are you kidding cities outlast governments <laughs> you know cities are creative as <laughs> i'll get out wrong. well jules this has been great it's just flying by as we knew it would but folks I'd like to remind you if you want to contact ed or me send us an email to ask tsoe at verisage.com go out to patreon.com slash tsoe and become a patron member and subscribe to us and that is now sponsored by 90 minds because to get ahead, hire a mind. Check them out at 90minds.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsors. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice America. 
Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. Have you ever listened to an advertisement for a book so many times that you question the existence of God? Me too. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I recorded the advertisement for Ron and Ed's book, The Soul of Enterprise Dialogues on Blah 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 Whatever, and four years later, we're all tired of it, especially me. But thankfully, there's a solution. For just $10 a month, you never have to hear my voice again. For a commercial-free version of The Soul of Enterprise, go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe now. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And our guest today on The Soul of Enterprise is Dr. Jules Goddard from Leonard Business School. And uh, Jules, I wanted to ask you a little bit about a, a session that I saw you deliver, I guess it was remotely since it was during COVID at uh, Xmonks. Uh, the the title of your talk was about the the 4D model of leadership, and you talk about destiny, drama, deliberation, development. Can you e- expand on that if you would? Yes, uh, <laughs> I'd love to. I, I, in a sense, it's a theory about how and why we become the person we become, um, and in a sense, there are four roots to selfhood or to personhood. Destiny is the person we were born to become. It's our kind of genetic inheritance. Uh, And of course, science is showing that this is an increasingly important uh, ingredient, more than perhaps we are prepared to admit. Um, The way we think, what we feel, our tastes and so on a lot of it is genetically determined, something like 60 to 70% of it. But of course, we do have choice, or at least I believe that human beings have have choice. And um, those choices come about perhaps in, in two ways. Um, there's the environment that impacts us with, with happenings, things that happen to us in life uh, that shape us, the parents we have, the school we went to, I was intrigued the other day to discover that our friends at school probably had a bigger influence on us than our parents. Those conversations with others of our same age going through the same stages of life can be profoundly influential and hence choose your friends with care because they have 
a huge influence. But then there's the deliberation part. The deliberation part is where we take a much more active line in determining who we are. We're not, I would sometimes say, I'm not uh, a white English uh, 70-year-old male. That says almost nothing about me. Our ethnicity, our nationality, our gender says precious little about us, I believe. I think what says a lot about us are those things we actively chose as part of our identity, our tastes in art, uh, the philosophers we enjoy, the friends we choose to make, the way we choose to see the world. And I think modern culture is driving out that sense of agency, that we have some control over the person we become. I think it was Aristotle who said, um, we act our way into the person we become. So the courageous person is someone who would like to be courageous, who wants to be courageous. He notices what courageous people do and how they do it. And when confronted by a situation that calls for courage, you pretend to be courageous. And the more you pretend, the more you become courageous. And I think in the modern world, particularly in our schools and universities, it would be a very unfashionable thing to say, forget the passive indicators of who you are, gender and ethnicity, concentrate on the identifiers that you yourself choose to stand for and be in life. Yeah, so true. I, I was in um, the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, one of the, the things that the authors point out in that book is that in a lot of ways, we're doing a lot of harm society, societally to ourselves by by coddling people and I, you know I think we've seen a shift in 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 leadership from the you know the command and control but then over to this what I'll call the white knight leader you know the one who comes in and saves everyone and that's I think just as damaging as well and and I could, because it's just you're just fixing the problem for people they're not able to fix it for themselves and be able to get out of a situation well I think we're finding this in England at the moment there's a high court judge called Jonathan Sumption who believes that the government is, is preying on us in terms of the fears it is arousing in us, in us as a result of COVID. Uh, and effectively, we're, we're imprisoned in our fear and, and courage and good sense has flown out of the window. I think in the old days, people would have expected governments to inform them as to what was happening, where the dangers lay and what some good practices might be and then leave it with us as free, to, free citizens to make sensible choices on our own behalf and on behalf of, of those we love. But increasingly, it's becoming a rule-bound society where we're not being allowed to exercise our judgment. We're following some incredibly prescriptive and finicky and detailed uh, rules from government, which, which sits uncomfortably, I think, with the notion of a libertarian society and a responsible citizenry yeah it, you know during world war ii they didn't say that you you know you must go into the tubes to survive, right that was that was not a mandate that you had to not a mandate <laughs> you know and and what what I, th what I think is so interesting is that we have uh 
folks telling us that, that you know and the, the what came out of the uh, college in london the the, the uh, you know 2 million people are we're going to we're going to die because of this model and i see so much of this happening you know this is this was happening in governments but i equate it to businesses as well they're obsessed with this model right <laughs> with my, and my, my, ron says i love this quote he says you know all models are wrong some are helpful <laughs> That's a lovely one. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I, I'm reminded. In fact, I, I thought you might want to bring up uh, this notion of, 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 of leadership and how it can create followership, uh, mm. which is a very dangerous thing. And I came across a quote from Christopher Hitchens, whom I'm sure you and Ron uh, adored from a distance, uh, if not close up. Uh, and, and Hitchens said, don't be a follower. Don't look for a leader. If he could lead you into the promised land, he could also lead you out. Do your own thinking and learn instead to think of the leaders in the same way as they think of you. That would be progress. Yeah. Wow. One of the things I talk to my mentor an awful lot about is this concept of, of leadership um, where what we're, we're concerned with is, is regulating the level of anxiety in ourselves um, and also societally. But and, and, uh, anxiety and creativity are always inversely proportional to each other, right? The more anxious you are, the less creative you can be. And we can't turn on creativity, Right. We, we, what we have to do is how do we lower our anxiety level? And of course, what's happened with leaders, not just in business, but also in government, is they're feeding this anxiety. They're f amping, they're stepping up the level of anxiety like a transformer does with electricity. And I just don't think it's healthy for us as individuals nor for society. I mean, our response has been positively medieval to the, this, the, the COVID situation. It's interesting we should be so keen in the modern world to make life quite so stressful. You'd have thought that the triumph of capitalism would have led to a degree of comfort and relaxation with life and its pleasures. But I think my generation is more stressed than my parents' generation was, even though they fought two wars and I never fought a war. And I see in my grandchildren, I think a level of anxiety which was completely foreign to me when I was that age. And it's something I'm doing as a grandparent or it's something I'm doing as a parent or you're doing it, Ron. And it's very, very interesting, isn't it? That we're becoming more and more neurotic, pathologically neurotic, more fearful, more anxious. Uh, and the what is the source of this anxiety? With the wealth we have, the opportunity for travel, I saw the other day a very interesting fact. The average person in America today is wealthier than Rockefeller was at, his, at the wealthiest point in his life because he didn't have access to the kind of travel, the enjoyment, the theater, and so on that we have. So pound for pound, our pounds, probably rather fewer pounds than he had, or go further than they did for Rockefeller. And yet, we feel as though, in some sense, we have a right to be miserable. <laughs> Where does this come from? <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great question. And no, he didn't have access to antibiotics either. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't. <laughs> 
So, you know, when we're talking about a vaccine for COVID that is being tested in less than a year since the disease has been identified, that is absolutely amazing. Astonishing. (laughs) And not just one, there are something like 10 in the world that are coming to fruition. That shows, doesn't it, that when humans put their mind to it, they're capable of enormously gifted and beneficial things. Yeah, it, I think it is going to be incredible, as Ron said, what the innovation that came out of, of the Great Depression. I think what we're going to find is the innovation that comes out, especially in, in medical and healthcare, not dealing with vaccines per se, but out of healthcare because of the research that was around it. it, it we're not going to see it for another two, three, five years, but it's going to be intense. It's interesting. I think travel is changing. I, I, I and, and the the way we get around, I... I was amazed by this beautiful little French car. I don't know whether it's been publicized uh, in the States, the Citroën Ami. Uh, It's really a quadricycle, but you can drive it. It's four wheels and two doors. Uh, It only costs, um, if I remember rightly, $4,000. You don't need a license to drive it. And anyone over 14 can drive it on city streets. And it only goes, I think the, the top speed is 28 miles an hour. Now, this seems to me to be a wonderfully clever and insightful car. I'm sure they were working on it before the pandemic. But in a sense, the pandemic, I think, has taught us that in cities, we don't need these huge, fast, over-engineered cars. We could quieten down and return, if you like, to that notion of a city. Well, Greenwich Village, for example, something more like that world and less like the world of racing to work. Absolutely. Well, we're up against our next break. This is flying by. We're so happy that you're with us. But if anyone wants to get a hold of Ron or myself, the way it, website is thesoulofenterprise.com, where you can see show notes as well as previews to upcoming shows and our archive of all our previous shows, including our first interview with Dr. Jules Goddard, which you can get to by by going, I believe to, it was episode 24, if I'm not mistaken, but I will find that out and leave the show no- the, uh, and talk about that later. But right now, a word from our sponsor. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever listened to an online radio show that changed your life? I'm required to say that I have. Have you ever stopped listening to an online radio show because the commercials were mind-numbingly repetitive? Of course you haven't because you're here right now. Look, you don't have to listen to me anymore. There's a commercial-free version of this show, and it only costs $10 a month. And for $15 a month, you get no commercial commercials plus bonus content go to patreon.com slash tsoe subscribe now and be free you're worth it
From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome back, everybody. We're back with Dr. Jules Goddard. And Jules, I wanted to ask you, because I, I, I also just love this line. I know I'm throwing uh, lines at you from your book 10 years ago, but you say beliefs and assumptions rather than goals or values separate winners from losers. Markets are battles between belief system. And, you know, I don't know who said this. It's usually attributed to some Nazi that whenever I hear the <laughs> word culture, I reach for my revolver. Okay. Yeah. Um, but how does one work on a culture? I mean, this seems to be the current buzzword. And I, culture is beliefs, assumptions, how we do things, our worldview. Is it really possible to change? I mean, I know it's possible to change a culture, but how do you, but that doesn't give me insight on how to do it. Yes, you both asked very complex questions. Um, culture, yes, uh, we—it's uh, our institutions. It, it's the assumptions that are never spoken, or the beliefs that remain tacit, and therefore, even knowing the culture of which we are a part is difficult, let alone changing it. Uh, I like the notion of choice architecture. We've just been talking. Mm about Rory Sutherland. Rory uses the notion, as indeed Dan Ariely does as well, of choice architecture as the, the context that nudges us towards certain kinds of behavior. And of course, politics is the art of nudge, isn't it? It's the art of shaping the culture of a country by putting in slightly different incentives, uh, by perhaps prioritizing uh, particular virtues. We've been talking about cowardice and courage or anxiety and confidence. Politicians, I think gifted politicians, can shape a culture by setting a particular kind of style, can't they? Their own behavior can, in a sense, betoken a particular way of living. And if we admire the great people in our society, without necessarily wanting to, we find ourselves subtly imitating those people. This is the, the notion that Plutarch had, his book of lives, the, the 48 great heroes of uh, the classical civilization. And every school child read this book and studied these 48 heroic people. It's rather like the Greek gods. You have stories as to what virtue looks like, and you give yourself if you like, the right to choose which you want to imitate, and every leader becomes an exemplar. And I think culture at the end of the day is influenced by the people who, through skill or luck, become famous, and they portray a particular quality that others find attractive. And without knowing it, they start to imitate. Mimetic learning, I think it's called. We imitate those we most admire. Right. There's there's a saying here that that politics is downstream of culture that it's culture that you know the mass media hollywood that type of thing but i think it does work ways because you're right i think a um, president like 
like somebody like Ronald Reagan can definitely affect the culture. That quotation at the beginning of your program, which I heard, is an amazing piece. Of, I think it's uh, one of his best speeches. Uh, uh, such a beautiful voice he had. You, you, you know, if you listen to that quality of thought, you cannot help but be influenced by it. And this is the role of leadership. It's the modest expression of great ideas. None of us can be wholly original. Often it's better simply to take some of the finest thoughts that man has ever had from history, from uh, the classical period of mankind, and bring them back to life in the modern world. We don't have to be inventive, 100% inventive all the time. Where America is particularly lucky to be in a, a setting that has, uh, in a sense, a, a wonderful mix of, of cultures that are inherited with everyone who arrived. And, you know, you are, you are the melting pot of the world. You are the, the, the city on the hill still, I think, the shining light. And that's partly because of precisely that, that the, the culture was perhaps upstream of the politics. The politics was hugely shaped by the nations that formed the early life in America, I think. I don't know whether you would agree with that or not. Yeah, no, I, I would. I'm glad you say that. I'm, I'm always interested to hear what outsiders think, you know, peering into America or, or listening to immigrants who seem to have a real deep appreciation because, of course, they know the other side. Yes, exactly. You know, Jules, I hate to do this because this is such a lofty conversation, but I got to ask you about this because it's one of Ed and mine's pet peeves. We we just despise the annual performance uh, review process. We just think it's kabuki theater on steroids. It's the most ridiculous thing we subject ourselves to in these organizations. And you even pointed out in your book that, you know, the average European company spends 25,000 person days on planning and performance per 1 billion of turnover, there's, we try and keep a list of all the companies that have moved away from this, Accenture, Deloitte, Medtronic, Microsoft, Netflix. It's now estimated over 10% of Fortune 500 companies don't use these things, they've gotten rid of them. Do you see that trend in your work? And I think less on this side, certainly of our major corporations, I don't frankly see very much of that in Europe. Uh, not as much as, as as in the states, but it is it's definitely the trajectory that we need to be on. Uh, Gary Hamill uh, priced uh, bureaucratic waste at three point one trillion dollars a year, seventeen percent of U.S. gross national product, and it's almost exactly the same. Studying uh, the European Union, almost exactly almost exactly the same. We cannot afford uh, to still be using what in effect are socialist instruments, the centralized planning instrument. It failed over 70 years in every single socialist society that tried to make it work. Why do we think uh, centralized planning that has never been made to work for 50 million people would work for 500,000 people? It won't. I suspect that management can only manage at the maximum about 150 people. And it's probably more realistic to think for most of our skills, 50 people is enough. But to think that 
500,000 or 80,000 can be managed and planned and performance reviewed is a total nonsense. Yeah, I stopped yeah. reading I stopped reading performance feedback a long, long time ago. If you're a teacher in the modern world, you're judged about five times a day. Endless paper filling of, of marks and observations. I just stopped reading it, I'm afraid. Uh, I, I just thought it was a waste of their time in particular, but also a waste of my time. Yeah, yeah. I think Ed, Ed likes to equate it to the self-criticism sessions that you have in the old Soviet Union and present-day North Korea even. Um, the, the, uh, you probably saw it, but there's a wonderful episode of The Office, the British version, the actual funny yes. one, not the one that yes. we ripped off from you. <laughs> um, it's called Appraisal Day. And every time we show that to HR people, it's just it, it's just hysterical laughter. One girl actually, she said, I peed my pants. I laughed so hard. Yes. And we say, eh, well, yeah, laughter's, you know, confession. <laughs> we know this is a ridiculous process and we still keep it around. It amazes me. So I just wanted to get your take on that. It's interesting, isn't it, that um, we behave so artificially at work. There's something we leave behind at home so often when we go to work. Um we would not performance review our children. We would have a grown-up, I think, would have a proper conversation with them, a friendly conversation. That's what I loved about my parents. If I misbehaved, it led to an interesting conversation. It was not a performance review. And What's it wasn't a year after you a year after you did the deed. It, it was <laughs> it's quite. It's quite. <laughs> So we, as we said before we went live, we did have Gary Hamill on two weeks ago. And of course, we did talk to him about Humanocracy, a book that Ed and I just both love. What, what's your take on it? I love it. I'm not surprised that, that Gary has fashioned this wonderful word. He is an absolutely amazing wordsmith. And in a sense, it's the, it's, it's the roof on the house that he's been building for a long time of returning to, to human virtues, to intimacy, uh, to natural behavior, um, to thinking well of one another. Mm. If we expect the best of others, by and large, most people, the vast majority of people will bring the best to bear. But if we have a cynical culture, a judgmental culture, or an instrumental culture where we treat others as means to an end rather than ends in themselves, that's when things start, I think, to go wrong. And if you think of managerialism, the opposite of, of humanocracy, you do think of the breaking of the golden rule uh, of not treating people, other people, as we ourselves would want to be treated. And I think humanocracy is simply, you know, Kant's categorical imperative writ large and made appropriate to, to, corporate, to corporate life. I like the phrase... We should not treat one another as human resources, but as resourceful humans. Yeah, just just the idea. Uh, it's in a subtitle, but it's uh, you know something like building organizations that are as creative and resilient as the people inside them. It's such a great insight, and it is, I, isn't it? It's it's it, a brilliant insight, and I think he says elsewhere something about the collective subtracts value from the sum of the individuals, whereas the whole point of going to work together is that we get something from each other that makes us better than we would be working alone. Right. And Gary thinks we've subverted that and it's exactly the opposite now. 
Yeah. And, and he's right. I mean, when you look at uh, bureaucracy in these organizations, it just takes over. It's insidious. And like he says, it grows faster than the organization is growing. <laughs> exactly. It's incredible. Well, Jules, this has just been great. Ed's going to take you home, but I just wanted to say thank you so much for coming back. We will definitely have you back on if you're willing. We love talking with you. This has just been so enriching. So, and of folks, course, we'd like to remind thank you. you no, thank you. I'd like to remind you, check out the soul of enterprise.com. We'll post full show notes with our interview with Jules and, and of course, uh, links to his books. And if you want to get a hold of better me, send us an email to ask TSOE at verisage.com. And now we want to hear from our sponsor and Ed's employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Sage provides accountants with compliance, reporting, and analytic solutions to do more for their clients. These solutions include education programs such as the Sage Accountants Network Client Advisory Service Program. This program delivers the tools to create, package, price, market, and deliver additional services to clients, increasing your profitability and delivering more value to your clients. Let Sage help you grow your business by visiting sageaccountantsnetwork.com. Have you ever been so annoyed by a commercial for a $5 ebook that you were willing to pay $10 to never hear it again? I sure have. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. Over the last several years, you've come to hate me, and I hate me too. By now, you know that for $5, you can get a copy of Ron and Ed's book. What you might not know is for twice that much every month for forever, you can stop hearing Hearing me plug Ron and Ed's book, which totally makes sense, like the Diamond Water Paradox. Go to patreon.com slash TSOE and subscribe today. Please, for the love of God, make it stop! When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. tuned into the soul of enterprise with ron baker and ed class to find out more about our show visit us on the web at the soul of you can also chat with us on twitter using hashtag ask tsoe now back to the soul of enterprise it is our joy to present to you guys today our listening audience our conversation second conversation with dr jules goddard we uh, so enjoy our conversations and time with him, and it's flying by. But I want to jump right back into it, Jules. Um, a pr- presentation I saw you give, you reference a quote by Tim Ambler in 2003, where he's, this is his quote now, on average, boards devote nine times more attention to spending and counting cash flow than to wondering where it comes from and how it should be increased. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I can't get through the quote without laughing because of the absurdity of it, yes. but yet that's the case, isn't it? <laughs> yes, yes. Tim Ambler was an extraordinary man. He was brilliant. He was a a mathematician, um, won a double first at at Oxford University, and then went into Diageo. It used to be called Distillers, the the drinks company, and he became, I think, the youngest finance director. Um, in Britain, of a FTSE 100. 
And then he became so frustrated with the marketing side of the enterprise and their inability to invent new alcoholic beverages, he became the marketing director and invented a whole plethora of great drinks, including Malibu and many others. Uh, so he saw it on the inside, business on the inside and where the priorities were. He then became a professor at London Business School in marketing and I became very, very close to him. Uh, but he's so right, isn't he, that because cost can be counted and because it has right and wrong answers and because it's on the inside, it requires so little work to calculate the cost. You can see why managers prefer to dwell on that than what they should be dwelling on, which is the market and their customer and the creation of revenue. Um, because revenue is far more difficult to grow than cost is to reduce. And we're living, and I think, in a world where pretty much most boards take as not only their most important priority, but almost as their only priority to become more efficient. And I like the phrase, strategy is the art of staying one step ahead of the need to be efficient. We do not go into business to cut costs. We go into business to, if we can, produce the most desirable merchandise in our particular marketplace that we're capable of. And that's the challenge, to increase value and to increase price each year, not to subtract from the, the cost line, which will eventually drive us into, into bankruptcy. Yes, there, there was another moment in the presentation where you say that zero out of 25,000 companies could point to cost cutting as the reason for driving profitability. Zero of 25,000. 25,000. That was the great Deloitte uh, study. I think it was a U.S. study, actually, by Deloitte mm -hmm. in 2012, 2013, published in the Harvard Business Review. Yes, yep. they couldn't find a single successful business that owed its success to cost-cutting mm -hmm. or to yeah. At best, you said it was it was two of them. It was it played a role. Two, two out of <laughs> two out of two out of twenty three thousand or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It's just still absurd. Well, and to that, you know, one of the things that Ron and I have been talking a lot about on our show the last last couple of months, even over a year now, is subscription pricing. And the one of the reasons why we think that is such a huge innovation because it does exactly what you just talked about. It forces the company to come up with new and better products every single year. Take Netflix, for example. They don't increase the price when the new season of Ozark drops, right? They, they, they constantly have to refresh their product in order to keep the, keep the customer happy. So just some initial thoughts on, on that type of thinking. It goes back to our conversation about culture and nudge, doesn't it? That's a, what the subscription price is a choice architecture that nudges us to think about quality and not cost and to be inventive rather than mechanical in what we do and to see business as a noble activity rather than a kind of scrounging activity. Uh, we need to rethink business. It is the noblest of all professions, I think. It's created more happiness in the world. Trade and commerce has created more genuine pleasure in the world than any other activity. It's the only one that has deep within it the, the, the notion of um, the imaginative meeting of human 
needs and it does it particularly well and we're in danger of forgetting that aspect of business and simply making it as i was suggesting a mechanical effort of stripping out cost um outsourcing um global supply chains uh, when i was in boston recently i was very impressed by the fact that boston if i remember rightly has a has a has a, a mission uh, to source something like 80% of its food from within 50 miles of the city that seems to me to be an extraordinary ambition and i think one of the things coming out of covid is a return to the locality the local store uh, the local pub uh, and bring back some greater measure of community i think in america you understand community better than we do in europe but certainly in europe we've lost that sense of of neighborliness and how that could be recovered sorry i'm off the subscription pricing aren't i but to the extent that i understand it if it's nudging us towards uh, those human values then it's working isn't it it has to be working yeah no and i know i appreciate that your your thoughts on that too cuz while certainly it's it's a noble thing to have a local source the great thing is is that that extra 20% can still be kiwi fruit <laughs> right <laughs> from 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 the from the global market absolutely <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. and it, it, it is amazing to me that you know I, I I try to point this out to my kids is when we walk into a Target or to a store we should be amazed every single time the 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 fact that we were short on toilet paper when this first thing happened right have people like so all right that's still a minor inconvenience compared to all of the things that we still have and it's the marketplace that, um, that got us there yeah absolutely that kiwi fruit. Uh, it's thousands of people who were responsible for growing it and moving it to that store and making it available at the price it was. Thousands of people with no need, as we were saying earlier, no need for performance reviews and centralized planning. That happened through the natural synergy of, 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 a, of a market. Brilliant. Yeah. Right. With perhaps with different belief systems, different religions, all of these people somehow figured out a way to cooperate with one another. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I think business was always ahead of that. Uh, what would it be called? That or the provincial attitude, those tribal attitudes that didn't want to mix. Business was the one that, in a sense, encouraged us. Was the choice architecture to have us mixing? I think. Uh, I think Hayek once said that the greatest man who ever lived was the the first moneylender, because the first moneylender was the person who established, who was the first to establish trade between two tribes and broke down those kinds of, of barriers and made us a, a, a common uh, a global uh, human race, ultimately. Yes. Well, well, let's hope that we can begin to, to get back to this kind of thinking and maybe COVID, as you said earlier, will spur us on to new and better things uh, within our society. We're, any closing? What are you working on? We have, about, we have about a minute left. What are you working on? A minute left, very quickly. I'm working on a book called Business Experimentation, and it's very much around the sort of human, humanocratic uh, Gary Hamill type beliefs. It's simply saying planning needs to be replaced with experimentation. And we need to uh, bring, if you like, science rather than socialism uh, inside inside the firm. And that will be coming out September next year. We're submitting the, the manuscript in February. So uh, 
it would be good. It would be good, Ed and Ron. It would be good to talk about this in a year's time. It would be lovely. We we are we are. I'm going to make a note of that and expect the email yeah. <laughs> to, to come through. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. you so much, Ron. What do we got coming up next week? Uh, Ed, I'm so excited. We have one of my favorite writers from National Review, Jane Nordlinger, who wrote a great book called Children of Monsters, which I can't wait to talk to him about. So I'm really looking forward to it. And there might be this thing coming up, the U.S. election between then, too. So he, we, uh, we, we yeah. might have something. That, we might talk about that a little yeah, bit, too. A little bit. All right. Little well, bit. I'll see you in 167 hours. This has been the soul of enterprise, business, and the knowledge economy, sponsored by SAGE, transforming the way people think and work so their organizations can thrive. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern. In the meantime, check us out at soulofenterprise.com. We'll post full show notes from today's show. Also, you can contact Ed or me at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a great weekend.